Welcome to a Thursday morning edition of Unexpected Points. I'm going to go through my best bets, predictions for all of the different awards this season, plus take some listener questions in the form of mailbag and catch up a little bit on the news, all that and more on this edition of Unexpected Points. Alrighty, everybody. Just me, solo pod here. Uh, I've been digging through a lot of different awards, bets, other types of different prop bets for the season. I've been tweeting out somewhat tongue in cheek, but also somewhat seriously, a series of long shot bets that I'm making saying who's with me and sometimes positive responses on those. Sometimes not so positive, but of course, long shots are, while they could have positive EV in general, they take so long to hit your money's tied up for so long, all those different things that it's not exactly the best type of investment for someone who's looking to maximize their complete annual ROI, but it's fun. So let's have some fun and I'll give you some of those along with ones. I think a little bit more solid, less of long shot type of bets for this season. But before I get into that, let me just mention right up top, 25% off any PFF subscription with promo code unexpected. Get all the locked article content. I'm going to be putting out some articles on what I'm discussing here to get into a little bit more depth with some visuals on some of these different plays that I had. And last year, I didn't do a ton of stuff on awards as far as write-ups are concerned, but I did, I believe, talk about on the pod and I wrote up my um, offensive and defensive rookie of the year best bets. I mean, I had Micah Parsons, so we'll 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 put that in the in the in the column here for a win. Uh, I know you could say, well, he was the the odds-on favorite. He was the odds-on favorite, but I think it was still five to one at that point. And I, I had a whole article explaining why that was still a value um, at that price. And I, I had a lot of research in that article and in my offensive rookie of the year article, which I, I made the case for Najee Harris. And process wise, obviously Najee Harris did not win. He did not receive a vote, I want to say. Let me see. Did he get a vote? Um do, 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 offensive rookie of the year. No, he did not get a vote. Uh Jamar Chase, 42 votes, Mac Jones, five votes. Two for Creed Humphrey, one for Rashawn Slater. So he did not get a vote. But I think process-wise, if you say uh, we're going to take a running back, and again, I'll go through some of the numbers here about how running backs have been much, much, much more successful in Offensive Rookie of the Year than they would be for MVP, whereas you know MVP has become a quarterback award. Running backs still have a chance when it comes to uh, Offensive Rookie of the Year. But again, you know Najee Harris, as a rookie, and this is all this is really what I was betting on, 307 carries, 94 targets. I mean, that and and he was 15 to 1 when I recommended going for uh Najee Harris in the uh his odds were 15 to 1, uh at least at one of the books. So is he at ETN? He and ETN had the same uh were were plus fifteen hundred both 
at FanDuel. So I'll say if I can get a running back at 15 to 1 who gets 381 touches, um, I'll take that. <laughs> it was 74 catches and 307 rushing uh, yards. The problem, of course, with what happened with Harris is 3.9 yards per carry. And I knew said, oh, we should have known that because the offensive line was going to be bad. And this, I mean, whatever. I'll I'll take the certainty of volume, betting on that and hoping for the upside of, of efficiency that we didn't get. But again, you, you take all that, you score 10 total touchdowns. You know, it was a tough year because there's so many quarterbacks that came out early, but the quarterbacks all kind of flopped other than Mac, uh, Mac Jones. And then you had Jamar Chase where, you know, hat, hat tip to him that he ended up coming through on that. Of course, he was much shorter odds than Najee Harris. So I, I think process-wise, Harris probably was, you know, maybe not the best bet, but you have to say, again, approaching 400 touches as a running back, rookie of the year. I think I'll take that bet year in and year out and just hope that variance will be on my side for efficiency. Okay, so so what are we going to do for this pod? I'm going to go through offensive and defensive rookie of the year, those markets first, move on to defensive player of the year and then MVP and I'll sprinkle in some other some other stuff in there. I'm not as interested as offensive player of the year. I think that is a it's a unique market because quarterbacks still get the offensive player of the year sometimes. And it's just a weird market. Like I feel like we should just restrict quarterbacks from even being part of offensive player of the year. But it happens a decent amount, and then you're stuck in this thing of, well, am I overvaluing the position players in that market, assuming that MVP is going to be the quarterback market, and then offensive player of the year, you're choosing amongst the best non-quarterbacks, but that that curveball that with the quarterbacks getting thrown in there makes it a little more difficult. I'll probably have to do something a little more comprehensive when I look at uh, the winners there, and maybe I'll be able to come out with some value there. But for now, I'm going to skip offensive player of the year. But let's start at Offensive Rookie of the Year, because I think this is one of the most interesting markets. Of course, it's going to depend on you know what books you're looking at here. Uh, I have a slew of different ones that I'm looking at uh, on a site that aggregates all the different books here. There's some funky stuff on here on PointsBet. I don't know. They're giving some sort of promotion or something because they have these much better odds on a, on a lot of this stuff here. Um, so... Oh, sorry, I'm looking at Offensive Player of the Year. Let's get to Offensive Rookie of the Year. So uh, Kenny Pickett is, at least consensus-wise, has the shortest odds at 5-1. to one. Uh, Drake London is around 7-1. to one. Brees Hall is anywhere between 7-9-1. to nine to one. Traylon Burks is anywhere between 7-8-1. and eight to one. And then if we're going through consensus, I'm not going to name all these guys. If we're going through consensus, we have Christian Watson, Garrett Wilson, Kenneth Walker, Chris Olave, uh, Jameson Williams, which I don't quite understand. Like, I, I guess he could be back pretty early. Uh, Sky Moore, again, Sky Moore, a lot of Sky Moore I love out there. James Cook, uh, Desmond Ritter, and so on and so forth. So I think for this market, let's step back first, and I'll go through some of the numbers that I compiled for my Najee Harris piece last year, where it's looking at these awards by position. So contrasting the MVP to the Offensive Rookie of the Year. So over the last decade for the MVP, there have been nine quarterback winners, one running back winner, and that was uh, 2012, of course, Adrian Peterson. After this season, we'll probably just have 10. 
over the last decade. And if you go further back in quarterback markets, between 2001 and 2010, there were two running back winners. And between 1991 and 2000, so the prior decade, there were four running back winners. So six quarterbacks, four running backs. That's market has obviously completely shifted now at this point. And the ability for anyone but a quarterback to win MVP is pretty small. I mean, we've had some defensive players who have won in the past, like Lawrence Taylor. Uh, zero wide receivers have won the award uh, from the 90s on until now. So betting on a wide receiver seems like an improbability at this point. And um, the difference is, and the contrast is when we go over to running back, we go over to the offensive rookie of the year. Um, if we go all the way back to 1991 through 2000, which again, the dynamics have changed towards, towards quarterbacks. You know, this is like the dark ages for some people in football. Um, zero quarterbacks actually won offensive rookie of the year in that decade. Eight running backs won and two wide receivers won. Now it has shifted more and more towards quarterbacks over the last couple of decades. And if we look at, let's go back to 2011 through last year. So it's 11 years here because I'm including 2001 and Jamar Chase's win, which wasn't part of this this article here. So over that 11-year time span, five quarterbacks have won, four running backs have won, and two wide receivers have won. So it's, it's, it's pretty well, well spread out between those positions. Um, but running back is still a pretty good bet relative to others, and especially relative to, to wide receiver. And if we look at what happened this year in the NFL draft, we don't have the high-end quarterback talent, obviously. Kenny Pickett, the first pick at 20, uh, no one else until the third round. So you do have Pickett at the top, but he's not there anymore. Last year, there was a lot of competition in the odds amongst all of these quarterbacks who were drafted in the first 15 picks um, that really gave value to other positions. That doesn't quite exist as much this year because even if you're going to look at whatever the overlay is on this, um, you just don't have all these short odds uh, for a bunch of different quarterbacks to soak up that and to, and to give value on some other positions. We do have wide receivers who were taken early this year. Drake London in the top 10. Um, Garrett Wilson, who was right at the edge of that. Do they have the quarterback play to be able to win? Traylon Burks is projected for the most yards and the most touchdowns, but he doesn't have the most narrow odds here. So do they have the quarterback play to win? Well, let's go ahead and look back a little bit at the type of wide receivers who have won this award in the past. Because the wide receivers definitely have more draft capital behind them here. So Jamar Chase winning last year, I mean, just an incredible rookie season. You know, top five pick doesn't happen that often at the wide receiver position. Uh, incredible efficiency and had Joe Burrow playing really, really well. I mean, the downside for Burrow was taking a bunch of sacks, but that doesn't really affect Jamar Chase's numbers and what he was doing. Um, Burrow had great efficiency when he actually got the ball out of his hands and it wasn't intercepted. Um, so, so you have that, so you have him winning last year. And then we got, got, got to go all the way back to 2014 Odell Beckham winning just an incredible season, right? I mean, that was maybe on a per-game basis the best rookie season we've ever seen from a wide receiver. Uh, Randy Moss was up there, of course, too. But uh, we have Odo Beckham there. And then we got to go all the way back to Percy Harvin in 2009 for another season. And if you look at Harvin, I mean, he wasn't a top 
top pick, but he was a first round pick. He had kind of a, a weird season where he almost didn't need good quarterback play in order to be that guy because of all that he was doing on the ground. I and mean, if you look at the what he did that year, I guess he only had 135 yards rushing actually as a rookie. I guess I'm thinking of his third season where he had that real breakout year and had 350 yards rushing on top of the 1,000 yards receiving. But he was he was there for that 2009 season. The 2009 season was kind of a weird year because if you look at – let's look at the 2009 NFL draft. If you look at the quarterbacks who came out for that year, uh, you had Stafford, who was drafted number one, and the Lions were just god-awful. Stafford was not good. Mark Sanchez, again, proven himself to not be that great. So he was number five, and he was he was taken there. And then you go down a bit further, and the next Josh Freeman with the Tampa Bay Bucks is the next guy at 17. So he just didn't end up having that high-end quarterback play that you would have expected there. I mean, Stafford was the number one pick, but he, was, he wasn't good as a rookie. He had a bad rookie season. And remember, this is the Lions team that's coming off of a 0-16 type of season, so just did not have much there. And they just had a lot of wide receiver busts guys who went earlier in that year, Darius Hayward Bay. Actually, Michael Crabtree was pretty good for a number of years, so he came out that year. Uh, Jeremy Macklin, who took a number of years to get going. And then you had Percy Harvin after that. And when it comes to running backs, the running backs who were selected early, uh, Noshaw Moreno was taken number 12 by the Broncos. Uh, some injury issues there. Took him a while to get going there. Donald Brown for the Colts, who probably was probably, that's probably would have been a guy that I was betting on getting to play with Peyton Manning. But Donald Brown was the one guy who couldn't, couldn't, be a superstar even with Peyton Manning and the, the very famous even look up the look at the the damn it Donald uh video which is a classic absolute classic of Peyton Manning yelling uh you can he gets picked up on the on the boom mic there yelling god damn it Donald when he was doing the wrong thing on a on a play action or who he was supposed to block or something like that so he was kind of a kind of a head case there um, so it's just a bad year for rookie talent that year when Harvin ended up winning and that's kind of what you need if you're not a Odell Beckham or um, Jamar Chase that we saw last year, or let's go back further, Anquan Bolden is another guy who wasn't necessarily a top, top pick, but had an amazing year. So you kind of need other things to go wrong. Um, Justin Jefferson, of course, almost won in 2020. So we're almost have back-to-back years of wide receiver play at that sort of level, level, but then Justin Herbert took it away from him with a fantastic rookie season. So I, I can get like looking at wide receivers. The problem this season for me is because you don't have the odds being soaked up by quarterbacks. There's just a lot of guys to choose from. I mean, whether it, whether it be London, Burks, uh, Olave, or Garrett Wilson all near the top, and I guess even Jamison Williams, if you want to throw him in there, just a lot of different choices. And I can't point to one of those guys as necessarily being a discount based upon where they're going to go there. I mean, Burks obviously has the the volume, the potential for volume there, but it's going to be a high percentage of targets, not necessarily a high volume sort of offense there. So then, so let's pivot to running backs. I do think Brees Hall is interesting. He's nine to one at DraftKings, So that would be a place that I would look at him. Um, the question will just be how much Michael Carter is involved in there. Cause I don't think Brees Hall is going to get the 370, 380 touches that we saw from Najee Harris last year. I think it'll be much more efficient with it, but that offense is very much a question mark. So Hall is a little bit interesting to me. He's the first player that kind of really comes up in the top guys. If you're going to pick amongst someone there, because I do think he profiles as a top 
first round running back sort of guy they traded up from they spent what was the equivalent of first round capital to get Brees Hall and if we can get that from nine to one again nine to one of DraftKings is the best odds that I see here that is interesting uh Kenneth Walker 12 to one not quite as interesting because you have Carson lurking and then of course Rashad Penny is the main competition there on a bad offense also a little bit more difficult but there is a way for him to get there I think for sure I just wish you're getting a little bit more of a discount versus <clears throat> versus Brees Hall. And I think that's kind of a necessity here. But let's talk to guys with a little bit more longer odds. And I'm not going to get to my favorite until the end. But um, Damian Pierce is an interesting guy. Now, we kind of lost out a little bit here. He's gone up to 40 to 1. I saw there were some 60 to ones before. I still think it's a little bit speculative here because the Texans are not good. But his running back competition, he's 220-something pounds. He can catch the ball. So he has that three-down workhorse sort of role that he could slip into there. And his competition is uh, Marlon Mack and Rex Burkhead. And that's it. And maybe Davis Mills could be, like, functional as a quarterback there. So, I mean, I'm not in love with that one. But I think that's an interesting at 40-1. to I think one I might like even a little bit more. But Pierce is a fourth-round pick, too, so this is way out there. We have had in the past, though, but it's been a couple of decades now, guys coming out of completely out of nowhere at the running back position to to win the award. Uh, Spiller, who was also a fourth-round pick, I believe. Let me check to make sure on that. But Isaiah Spiller is a guy who supposedly, if you believe uh, what what you're reading, supposedly the Chargers are pretty high on this guy. And... I think there's some like outside chance for Spiller. Yeah, fourth round pick, middle of the fourth round here. I think there's an outside chance for Spiller, maybe even more so than Pierce. Like Pierce, there's this chance that he could just win that position. But I think for Spiller, what you're really looking at, again, at 40 to 1, uh, this time at, at FanDuel, what you're really looking at for Spiller here is the contingent play. He was the consensus either RB2 or RB3. All those guys were bunched up going into the offseason program. He was bunched up with Kenneth Walker and with Brees Hall. His testing was pretty garbage. But he broke a ton of tackles, played in the SEC, looked great. He actually profiles similarly to um, someone like Kareem Hunt, who you know was the rookie leader in um in in his rookie season so he's guy could break a lot of tackles he can play really well there I think he's very interesting from that perspective and I do think there's probably in some ways a better chance that he could have that workhorse sort of role for a really good offense with the Chargers right if Eckler gets injured I think Spiller could become a three down back there I don't think they are very high on on the other guys there I mean I think they're pretty much ready to move on well not move on but I think they're pretty much ready to step aside this is again these reports that you're hearing whether it's you or not I don't know but I think they're pretty much willing to take Josh Kelly and Larry Roundtree and send them away so that would be my case for Spiller probably is my favorite long shot at 40 to 1 is Something happens with Eckler, Spiller steps in, can do everything, and can score a ton of touchdowns, and is playing with Justin Herbert in this fantastic Chargers offense. Contingent, a contingent play. But again, again, contingent plays don't happen that often, but 40 to 1, maybe it's okay. Okay, so my favorite play, though, 
is Matt Corral. Now, you've heard me talk about Matt Corral a lot, so maybe I'm just confirmation bias here. I'll call myself out on that. But Corral is 20 to 1 at a lot of places. FanDuel 20 to 1. And if you think about the players who are near him, I mean, Ritter is has shorter odds. He's mostly 14 to 1, maybe 16 to 1. Malik Willis is around the same, which is kind of insane to me uh, because he's playing behind Ryan Tannehill. And again, the other quarterback, uh, Kenny Pickett, is all the way at five to one. So why do I like Corral so much? Well, first off, you know, opportunity over efficiency is what I'm always saying about these guys. And when it comes to opportunity, I'm starting to put together some data for this piece that I'm going to have on Matt Corral and his rookie of the year, opposite rookie of the year odds. So I looked at the Bayesian updating that I do. So just for those who are unfamiliar, it's a it's a way of having a prior uh, projection for a player initially based upon their draft position and each pass that they throw based upon whether or not it's been above or below expectation, you adjust your expectation for who the player is going to be moving forward, what their forecast is going to be. And you make that adjustment, you update your prior, you update your prior, which then becomes your, your posterior thing. And I do, you could do it on a, you know, you could take an entire year and updates, but I, I do it in these different graphs on a drop back by drop back basis. Cause it kind of looks cool. As the, as the guys are, honestly, that's the number one reason to do a lot of these visuals. It's because guys are going up and down um, throughout the year, and you can visualize that and see it there. So let's look at the three rookie quarterbacks I think we have the best chance of winning starting jobs this year. I, I'm not putting Malik Willis in that bucket. Who knows what could happen? It could happen if things go really off the rails. But I think you've got to start probably 14, 15 games to have a chance here. And I just don't know if Tannehill will get the hook, no matter how poorly he's playing, after two or three games. Uh, he could get injured, of course, like like uh, Terod Taylor did, which bringing in the chance for Justin Herbert. But that's a little bit tougher to to bank on for for a quarterback. So the three guys who are the the starters now are, or the 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 putative starters, like the the presumed starters, which. Anyway, I don't want to get into the all, but I'll talk about it in a second. So Mitch Trubisky is the veteran in for the Steelers. Uh, Marcus Mariota is the veteran for the Falcons. And Sam Darnold is the veteran for the Panthers. So what gives Corral, in my opinion, such a great chance here? Again, he doesn't. He has similar odds, worse odds than even the other third-round guys. What gives him the best chance here is the worst starting quarterback competition. And... There can be um, some blind spots to this Bayesian updating that I do when I'm forecasting a player out. Most commonly in the circumstance where a player is switching teams and you're relying a little bit too much on past history for when they're switching teams. So you could have made the argument going into last season with Sam Darnold that, yeah, Bayesian updating sees him as one of the worst starting quarterbacks uh, of the last few decades. But he's coming into a new situation, this and that and so on. But but again, last season, he kind of proved again that he's just not good, even in this new situation. Mitch Trubisky, he's coming into a new situation, so maybe there's a chance to do well there. Marcus Mariota, again, new situation there, although the offensive line is, is horrible. But if you look at the two different components that I look at for the Bayesian updating, I look at grades and efficiency as expected points added per play. I look at those two things separately, and then I weave them together into a total projection. So of the 82 quarterbacks who have at least 1,000 dropbacks that I've had, that I've been tracking over the last, you know, 16 years, 
according to this formula. Of those, if I take at the end of all those dropbacks, whatever their new forecast is based upon everything that they've done in their careers, um, if I look at EPA per play, so their efficiency, not our grading, but their actual on-play efficiency, Sam Darnold is last. He's, 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 he's the worst of all 82 quarterbacks that are on this list who have had at least 1,000 dropbacks, his forecast going forward. The other guys, so Sam Darnold's last, second worst, Mike Glennon, then Blaine Gabbert, then Daniel Jones. That's a t- tough scene for Daniel Jones um, believers there. Brock Osweiler, Jacoby Brissett, Derek Anderson, Mark Bulger. Bulger was actually pretty good, but it was earlier in his career, which wasn't caught in this in, in this um, exercise because I only started from when we started doing data in 2016. Trevor Simeon, Mark Sanchez, Matt Castle, and so on. So Darnold's the worst there. And again, just looking at the EPA side of the equation, there are two different sides, the grading and the EPA. So we look at the other guys who are on here, and um, people probably forget that Trubisky was like low-key okay in his second season where he played a lot and had a lot of dropbacks. So he's actually kind of in the middle from an EPA standpoint because he derives so much value with this scrambling and avoiding and getting a lot of yak in that second season. So he has 19, he has, he, he has less than 2000 dropbacks. So there's still some uncertainty with him too, I think. And he's, he's the, he's right in the middle as far as his, his uh, EPA projection. So he's seen as being kind of average ish. Now when we go to grading. He's much, much worse. So we have to blend those two things together, but still a huge difference between him and, and Sam, Sam Darnold. And then we go to figure out, well, where is Marcus Mariota? Well, Marcus Mariota is, you know, a little bit below average, but not not the worst. Not the worst that that I've seen here. He is, let me see exactly where he goes here. Um He is in the yeah, he's in the middle sort of range also. Uh, a little bit better. So he is a little bit better than average when it comes to his career. And I think people forget that Mariota was not that bad as a rookie in his first few seasons. He just really flamed out at the end of his time in Tennessee and that he was replaced and they never looked back. So again, so we, so we have an EPA basis, Mariota a little bit better than average. When we look at these 82 quarterbacks, who have had at least a thousand dropbacks. Trubisky from EPA standpoint, a little bit worse than average. Sam Darnold dead last. Now we go over to grading. So how's their grading been? Sam Darnold, uh, not last. So congratulations on not being last in grading out of the 82 quarterbacks, but fourth to last. Blaine Gabber, Brock Osweiler, and Mike Glennon are the only ones worse than he is. Now, Trubisky is much, much worse when it comes to grading. He is in the bottom 10 when it comes to grading. So again, we blend these two things together. You could probably say that Mitch Trubisky is a bottom quarter type of quarterback um, for someone you're hoping to start at least a bottom quarter, maybe a little bit worse, but that's still better than Sam Darnold, who is like dead, almost dead last in both categories. And Mariota again is average ish in his grading in his grading uh, Bayesian projection. So he comes out about being slightly less than average overall. So who's going to start in these situations we're talking about Pickett versus so Pickett is going up against a quarterback who's probably a bottom quarter type of quarterback. Uh, Ritter is going against a quarterback who may be league average ish, a little bit worse. 
And then uh, Corral's going up against the worst starting quarterback by a healthy amount in the NFL. Presumed starting quarterback in the NFL going into the season. That gives Corral, in my opinion, as good of a chance, maybe even as Pickett. Probably not because Pickett's a first-round pick and he's a third-round pick. But closer than some would think as far as their forecast number of games started this year. And if you could just get that game started amount up, that alone will close that gap dramatically between 5-1 to one odds for Pickett or 20-1 to one odds for Corral. Going even further into into the situation here. I think we have to look at the Panthers. Like how can Corral do as I mean, I'm, I'm big on him, but he is a third round quarterback. So we don't want to get too, too aggressive with him, but what do they have around him? I don't think the Panthers are that bad. I know they had a five and a half win total. It's actually gone up to six. So it's moving a little bit, but I don't think the Panthers are the worst offense to have around someone. Okay. They have DJ Moore who they just resigned there. If they keep Robbie Anderson, we'll see. Could you get a breakout, second-year breakout, or at least play a little bit better from Terrace Marshall, perhaps? Uh, Christian McCaffrey, of course, is an option. is a great first-down um, producer out of the backfield. And I feel like Corral, with his quick release and the ability to throw it over the middle of the field, he showed a lot of uh, aptitude for that, could be really good for McCaffrey on those option routes that he's running out of the backfield. And the Panthers team stressed about midway through the season with the Joe Brady firing – Everything they've said offseason is they need to take care of the ball. You heard Bob McAdoo, uh, sorry, Ben McAdoo, their new offensive coordinator, talk about taking care of the ball, taking care of the ball. Sam Darnold, turnover machine. Matt Corral, the lowest EPA lost per drop back of any of these quarterbacks on interceptions last year, and the lowest EPA lost on sacks. He's someone who does not do negative things. Lowest turnover-worthy play rate last year also. So he fits that mold. Now he's a rookie, so things can get a little complicated. But he does fit that mold as a guy who took care of the ball better. Let's remember, Darnold, when he was in college, he had this fantastic redshirt freshman year. And his redshirt sophomore year, before he came out into the NFL draft, he was turning the ball over a ton. So that hinted at this kind of Jameis-ish kind of turnover streak without the upside is what he's proven to be in the NFL, though. It's like Jameis without the upside. Um, I just can't see how the Panthers and Matt Rule fighting for his job, wanting to have this good running game and good defense support the team, won't want to turn things over to a guy who in college was already a much better player at taking care of the ball. And if you think about also for corralling, like he didn't have a ton of help on his team in the SEC last year, only one offensive player was drafted in the 2022 draft other than Corral, and that was a running back in the fifth round. And his projections for next year, there's a running back and maybe a tackle who may go somewhat early, but we're talking about top 100 picks, not first round picks or anything like that. And the last thing for the Panthers, this might be the most important, is they turned over three of their five offensive linemen. That, that was a big weakness for them, which Darnold accentuated by his, holding onto the ball and making poor decisions. But they turned over three of their five offensive linemen. Iki Kwanu, we probably shouldn't expect better than league average-ish sort of play for him. But he's coming in at right tackle. They have extended uh, Taylor Moten on the, on the right side. They brought in Austin Corbett, who's going to play guard. They brought in Bradley Bozeman at center, who's going to be pretty good. So, like, those pieces, you can get pretty average-ish sort of offensive line play. And, in fact, Ben Baldwin, when he did his projections 
of what of ranking for offensive linemen using PFF grades and then using as, assumptions based upon draft position for rookies. The Cardinal, I mean the Cardinals, the the Panthers were right outside of the top ten, may have even been tenth. That is a drastic difference from their pass protection grades last year, which were in the bottom five. So all these things are kind of coming together to give Corral, I think, a decent shot of being successful if he gets in there. And Matt Rule needs results this year. And Sam Darnold, in my opinion, is not going to get it. So I think you can get two different things from Corral. I think you can get him being named a starter earlier than you you expect, which moves him up probably – doubles his odds of winning the award right there according to the betting markets and then you could you can maybe you can get better than expected play once he's actually in there because of what they've built around him and how he's been able to avoid turnovers in the past because the defense even wasn't that bad and i know they started three and oh and then it you know tanked quickly as far as that's concerned but it was a defense that played fairly well last season especially against the path the problem was they would just get run all over after their offense was turning over the ball and not making for a great situation there. So that's my case, Matt Corral, 20 to one, get it while it's hot. Um, You need a few things to go right, but you only need to go right better than one out of every 20 times in order for that to happen. Okay. Let's turn over to defensive player of the year. The offensive player of the year is going to be my longest case. Uh, Rookie of the year, excuse me. Offensive rookie of the year is going to be my longest case. It's going to be a little bit shorter when it comes to, some of these other guys. So defensive rookie of the year, again, I'll give you the, the upfront stats. Um, again, I had Mark, Micah Parsons last year because linebacker is a more common defensive rookie of the year winner than a defensive player of the year winner. That goes more to edge players and then also defensive interior, although the defensive interior is like Aaron Donald, basically. <laughs> That's what we're talking about there. It's not normal uh, interior the defenders on the line there. It's just Aaron Donald who goes in there. So it really is dominated by edge players, uh, defensive player of the year. It's really dominated by edge players and Aaron Donald there. And the defensive rookie of the year, it's more spread out. It can be defensive backs, but that's fairly uncommon. Um, but it's more spread out between the linebackers and the edge players. Last year, there were no top edge players. That's why I really liked going with Micah Parsons here. And he ended up playing a lot like an edge, which I didn't necessarily expect him to go that much towards it. But I knew that, that that was good this year. Of course, we don't have the strongest talent near the top, but we do have edge defenders going first, going second and going fifth. Those are really the type of guys who win this rookie of the year award. Um, Because let's bring it up here. If you look at the edge, look at the guys who have won this. In the past. So again, Micah Parsons won it last year, but then we have Chase Young, obviously edge defender, Nick Bosa, obviously edge defender, uh, Darius Leonard before that. So that goes back to the, the linebacker thing. Marshawn Lattimore before that, which is an interesting one. Joey Bosa uh, after that. And then we, there's Aaron Donald. And there's some other guys in there, but again, look at Vaughn Miller eventually a bit further down is another guy that wins. These are top, top picks. These are not guys that are coming out of nowhere. These are not even mid or late first round picks. These are like top five pick type of guys. So we have a few of those in this draft. So I don't love saying I'm going to go, you know, five to one. Uh, There's some six to one out there on Hutchinson or, or Thibodeau, but they both have pretty good schedules as far as the quarterbacks that they're facing guys who are going to take a lot of sacks Thibodeau in, in particular. So I'm not against that. If you want to go Trayvon Walker, cause he was number one, I guess I'm a little bit more hesitant cause he doesn't have the production in college, but that's also another one that 
you know, if you want to throw darts at the guys at the top of the board, it's normally something I wouldn't recommend, but you could you could go ahead and do it. I think the linebacker is a bit of a trap this year as opposed to last year. I mean, Quay Walker is nine to one, which isn't awful, but he was seen as being kind of a reach. And even when we get into like the late first round for linebackers, there hasn't been a lot of success. There's been a lot of success in the middle of the first round, not as much success in the late first round. So the other guy who I'm going to point to here, and it goes against the base rates for defensive backs, but I think Kyle Hamilton is interesting if the Ravens use him as a hybrid player in particular, you can get, he used to be 11 to one. So now he's, it's getting a little tighter 10 to one now at fan duel for Kyle Hamilton. If they use him as a hybrid player, he went, you know, 13th in the NFL draft. Um, or was it 14th? 14th in the NFL draft. But a lot of people saw him as you know, this, this top five type type of player. And, if he can do like this hybrid linebacker, he might be the closest thing to an actual linebacker player, guys who win this award an outsized amount, because the rest of the linebackers are much further further down on the schedule. So this this Ravens defense gets a bounce back. He's, he's able to rack up tackles, be involved a lot, be in the screen a lot. He could be a guy that people point to. And also as a guy, again, people a lot of people saw him as like a potential top five, definitely top 10 type of talent. It's just for positional value he ends up falling a decent amount there there's a lot of history of safeties winning the award but again you're just hoping hoping that he's going to play more like a linebacker and can get the hype because of that and then end up sneaking into to, to that sort of award it's a little but again i'm not in love with this market uh, and I would just going long shots on here. just seems crazy to me. There's really no case for, for long shots when it comes to defensive rookie of the year, based upon how the awards have gone in the past. The reality is a lot of guys who are voting on this probably aren't paying the most attention to all of these different rookies. So the hype of the higher picks, I think weighs even heavier in what the voting ends up being here. Another reason to maybe think about Hamilton at 10 to one, uh, or again, sprinkling something on Hutchinson or Thibodeau if you like those guys near the top. All right, let's move on to Defensive Player of the Year. This, again, very tough market, I think, because you have really the top, top guys here, Donald, Garrett, TJ Watt, Parsons, Bose, and the Bosa brothers all near the top here. Maybe if you want to say Joey Bosa will be freed up, by Khalil Mack and 20 to one, isn't that bad? I mean, I guess I could get with that a little bit. Uh, Garrett has, and Donald both have the shortest odds there. I think Garrett's always interesting there, but there's just too much competition and too much variance and randomness to when it comes to ending up getting sacks here. If you go a bit further down, I think this is probably my favorite like long shot type of market. And my favorite long shot here. If you go all the way down, you got to scroll a long way here to get down to Rashawn Gary. And Rashawn Gary, you can get 100 to 1 Rashawn Gary at uh, Caesars right now. So 100 to 1. And the thing about Gary is, yeah, he didn't have the, the sack totals that the other guys had last year, but his pressure rate was second in the NFL. His... Uh, win rate, what we call, which either getting a pressure or beating your block or anything else like was also second in the NFL. I do think there's some evidence with Gary that his 
sack rate is never going to match his pressure rates, maybe in a similar way to uh, uh, Jadavian Clowney that we saw in the past, that he maybe doesn't quite have the bend, so he has to use more more moves where he's using power moves or getting inside or bull rushes where that causes pressure, but it doesn't translate into a sack. Still, 100 to 1 versus these other guys who are like 6 to 1 who had similar sort of pressure rates. And Green Bay is going to have a, a pretty good schedule as far as being able to, to rack up those numbers. So the fact that he's in the same category, as far as his odds are concerned, with Justin Simmons, with uh, Cam Jordan, with Harold Landry, with uh, Demarcus Lawrence, with other guys who are you know solid players, good players. But Gary at least has that tailwind of the great pressure rate that he had, the, the fantastic... Um, athletic measurables that he had maybe in a way that you could say like a Trayvon Walker has some some hope because of Gary not having that college production and then really stepping up in the NFL that could also give him a little bit more of a ceiling so again it's not the best market to go into here you're not going to be necessarily happy about it but if you want to go to Caesars and throw a few uh shekels at Rashawn Gary at 100 to 1 wouldn't mind that one bit one bit at all and then lastly Let's go to MVP. Again, I'm going to skip off the player of the year because I need to do some more research before I'm feeling good about that one. MVP. Here's a good rule of thumb. Anytime Patrick Mahomes is not the odds-on favorite to win the MVP, bet on Patrick Mahomes. 9-1 to one at uh, DraftKings where Josh Allen is 7-1. to one. Yes. I will do that. I know Tyreek Hill is in there. We've got some question marks. We got Juju Smith Schuster is going to be, you know, TikToking out there with uh, Jackson Mahomes and Travis Kelsey could fall off a cliff because he's in his mid thirties now, older than Rob Gronkowski, very famously, older than Rob Gronkowski. And uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling is going to, you know, be dropping passes left and right. And Sky Moore is a rookie, so we don't know what's going to happen there. And McCole Hardman is a head case. I get it, but the offensive line is going to be good. Uh, I think they started to figure some things out at the end of last season on how to attack these newer defenses. And some of these players fall into that category, honestly, where Tyreek Hill was being neutralized, his ability to go down the field because of the two high defenses. So they have more options when it comes to Juju and uh, Kelsey of being able to to play over the middle a little bit more. Sky Moore is also a player who wasn't really a vertical guy, but was a win off the line of scrimmage guy uh, over the middle of the, of the field. So, yeah. I'm going to bet on the quarterback, even though there's obviously some downside here without having Tyreek Hill there to, you know, catch a, a uh, like he did at the end of the Buffalo Bills Super Bowl, not the the final, um, not Super Bowl, sorry, the AFC, um, the, what's on the AFC championship game, the um, AFC divisional round where we scored that that last touchdown that Tyreek Hill scored where he took a, a dig and just ran around everyone for a touchdown. You're not going to have a guy who's necessarily going to do that anymore here. But, you know, Valdez Scantling does get open. So he'll be open. He may drop some, but hopefully he'll catch some too. So I think he's an interesting play always if you can get him where he doesn't have the shortest odds. Other ones that people may like, Herbert, Burrow, that's nah, a little too short for me. Um, Wilson, Stafford, Prescott. I, I can't get behind any of these. They're just too much high-end talent here. <sighs> This is kind of disgusting, but Deshaun Watson at 25 to 1, I just don't know if he has any chance, even if he is the MVP, of actually being able to win the award. But we're, we're starting to hear that 
his deposition is happening now. He's starting to do some of the depositions now. It's likely that there will not be any sort of trial until after this season. And the NFL has indicated that it's not willing to preempt and move ahead of the legal system. If that's true and he plays an entire season, I think we've seen, I've started to see markets move on the Browns with the assumption that it may be true. We kind of have to recalibrate all of our assumptions on the Browns because, you know, they're not bad. They're not, not a bad team. Should be a pretty good team. Probably should be the favorites in the AFC North if Deshaun Watson is going to play the entire season. And again, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm not a Watson fan. I wasn't a fan of the move, but maybe it's something to consider. I, I, he would obviously have much shorter odds if it wasn't for the all these the allegations hanging over him and the suspension hanging over him. But if he's not going to get suspended, I don't see any reason why he should have longer odds than a lot of these guys. Uh, Murray, Jackson, Prescott, maybe even Wilson and Stafford. Like he should probably be more like 15 to one versus 25 to one, assuming that voters will not just refuse to vote for him, which maybe they will. I don't know that that is hanging out there. So I'm not in love with it, but maybe, maybe that would be something to, to consider. Um, I guess Trey Lance at 50 to one would be somewhat interesting because the Niners are going to be good this year, but there's a little too much, a little too much noise around that situation for me at this point. Uh, who else? Now we're going to go, Long shot. It's long shot season here. And I talked about this one. Zach Wilson, 150 to 1. Not even sure it's positive EV, but it's fun. 150 to 1 right now at DraftKings. Same odds as Daniel Jones, who has been not good for, what is it, three full seasons now, which is almost impossible for anyone to, to come back here. Similar odds to Jimmy Garoppolo, who doesn't even have a starting job. Uh, longer odds than Dalvin Cook, longer odds than Devontae Adams, same odds as TJ Watt, and longer odds than Nick Chubb. I mean, so here's the case for Wilson. One, you're going to hope that he just makes the second year leap. So you have that in your back pocket. I admit when I watched Wilson last year, even though he got a little bit better at the end of the year, like the ball was just never coming out on time. So you're just going to hope that that clicks somehow. Who knows? But from a more objective standpoint, like what do we like about um, about about Wilson this year or about his chances? Again, extremely long odds chances, right? What do we like? What do we like about for Wilson? Well, they've made a lot of investment in him. I was shocked almost to hear in some podcasts, I can't remember which podcast it was, that there was rumblings about maybe they don't believe in Zach Wilson, so they were hesitant to invest in him. I mean, they've invested a ton in their offense here. If you look at over the last three seasons, now this includes the signing of or the pick of Makai Becton, which was before Wilson. But still, if you look at the last three seasons, what they've invested in their offense. You have, for draft picks are concerned, the number 10 pick on Garrett Wilson, a wide receiver, the number 11 pick on Makai Becton, a tackle, the number 14 pick on Elijah Vera Tucker, a guard, the number 34 pick on Elijah Moore, wide receiver, number 36 pick on Brees Hall. That's a ton of draft capital filling out all those different positions there. In free agency, uh, Lakeland Tomlinson, they're, they're paying him $13 million a year at guard, $12.5 million a year for um why is the name escaping me Corey davis wide receiver 9.2 million george fant tackle 9 million connor mcgovern center they basically spent on every single position and then plus they have they're spending about seven million dollars a year 
on the tight end combo of Tyler Conklin and CJ Uzama that they brought in. So like, what do you want the Jets to do? If you think the Jets are being hesitant to spend around Zach Wilson or to give him a chance to, to win, I think that's insane. Like they've done pretty much all you can hope for here. They're going to have, you know, a first round pick, a early second round pick, a big free agent signing as at wide receiver, a very early pick at running back, a couple free agent signings for decent money at tight end, and then a ton of, of capital invest in the offensive line. They've given him surroundings to be successful. Now, guys like Makai Becton, maybe, you know, he's, he's, he's a little too, a little too much of a sweet tooth or maybe just an everything tooth. Um, he has some weight issues, maybe some commitment issues, according to some people, but you're talking about 151 bet here. So you're going to, you're going to hope these things align and these free agent signings like Corey Davis, maybe didn't look great. It looks a little bit better this year. Maybe he does. He just doesn't function as a wide receiver one. And Garrett Wilson can be that guy a little bit more. You have Elijah Moore who can stay healthy. You have other guys who can play at least functionally on the offensive line. Eh, you know, I, I think there's something there. I think there's something there for them. I kind of like the the over at five and a half wins also for this team. I believe in Robert Sala as a coach. And I think the defense is going to be a lot better too there. I don't really like Joe Douglas that much, but he's had just copious amounts of cap and a draft capital that he could pour into there. And in some ways by shooting all these darts and trading up for this high, high end talent, if they can all stay healthy and play well, then I think that gives me some hope for Wilson. So it just doesn't make sense to me that you could have the same odds as, you know, Davis mills right now being that I think the jets have more upside as a team and Zach Wilson clearly has more talent as a player. I mean, this is a talented dude as far as what he can do throwing the ball. It's just whether mentally he can get it all together and be able to play here. And maybe it will happen for him in his second season. So he would be my guy when it comes to MVP, long shot, 150 to one. Let's do it. Let's have some fun. Let's burn some money and put it on Zach Wilson. All right, let's switch over to uh, mailbag-ish. I didn't get a ton of questions, but I definitely have some here. I solicited my questions a little bit too late. Um, so let's see here. Uh, this is an interesting one from from Matt, although with a, with one T, Matt Martin at, oh, Matthias, at Matthias Martin. And he asked, what do the analytics say about paying one announcer $37.5 million a year? We need to know the analytics view on the matter. So that that's the news portion. Of course, Tom Brady signed a 10-year, $375 million contract with Fox to be their number one color commentator. And this is how I think about it. Does it matter who the color commentator is for ratings? Hmm. Probably not that much, right? But I think we have to look at the delta on spending for Tom Brady versus another color commentator in the context of how much are you spending on this entire enterprise? For those who are paying attention, the new deals that were signed by the different networks depends on what the package is. But the belief was that Fox and... I guess who are the other guys there? I guess it's CBS, right? Or the are the normal like Sunday football uh, early and 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 mid window packages um, that they pay two billion dollars for per year. They're paying for this over the next ten years, two billion annually. That is the number. Let me just let me just check. 
Let me just check to make sure I'm not completely overstating this. Estimated nearly two billion. Yeah. Um, so if that is the case, um, well, actually, let me make sure I'm getting this two billion is not the entire amount versus uh yeah two billion annually it says fox cbs and nbc are paying around two billion annually for these rights so you're paying two billion dollars <laughs> now how much does it take to produce all these different broadcasts that you're talking about i i have no idea so let's say it costs a hundred million dollars to for production that's probably more than that because if brady's making 37 and a half himself let's say it costs 200 million dollars for the production. So I agree, like, it's a big part of the production amount for Brady, but it's not a big part of the total spending if you take in the fact that they're spending $2 billion annually on this, on this amount. So if you do some back-of-the-envelope sort of thing, let's say, okay, so $37.5 million divided by $2 billion plus another $200 million that you're spending on everything. So Brady's salary comes out to $1.7 percent of the spending and if you think take it down even further if they're giving it to someone else you know troy aikman like what did what did aikman sign here so aikman was the old guy right um so what's aikman's deal with espn now uh 90 million for five years so 90 divided by five so that's 18 million a year so they're giving brady Almost twenty million more a year. So if you even go further on this, and you say, okay, well let's let's just look at the twenty million delta that you're doing there versus Troy Aikman, then it becomes less than one percent of your operating budget when you're paying for the TV rights and everything else. So I think it does matter. And I think the one thing you get, although you know, sometimes they do the ads where they're in the booth, and it's mostly the play-by-play guys giving the ads, but then sometimes the color commentator will you know, be like, oh, you know, whatever about some new Fox hit. You know, they always say the number one new smash comedy on Sunday nights is this. <laughs> so whatever they're advertising, I mean, just having Brady's aura around that advertisement, maybe that matters a little bit for advertisers, for the network, for others. And that I could see being worth the extra, the extra Delta there. So long story short, doesn't matter to me that much because it's a small part of the entire amount and could actually be worth it, even though people say it does, it does, you'll watch it no matter what. I agree with that. But it's almost like you're getting an endorsement a bit from that player. And I think a Tom Brady endorsement when we're talking about some of these ads that are going on is, a, is, worth, a, is worth probably an extra $20 million a year when it comes to how many uh, eyeballs you're getting on this sort of thing. Okay, that's the first one we have here. Uh, another interesting one here from King Cole, the eighth, your highness, uh, Cole here, K-O-L-E. So your, your highness, um, he asks, it would seem like there are currently three championship contending teams with the NFC, the Rams, the Bucks, and the Packers. Outside of those teams, who would you say is on the cusp of even sniffing those teams in respect to their roster construction, quarterback play, and play calling? Yeah, good, good question. Um, if you go through the odds, you are correct. There is a huge tier when it comes to who is going to win the NFC. Let's just go ahead and look at those base rates here for the odds. The consensus odds for the Packers is about three and a half to one for the, I'm sorry, for the Bucks, three and a half to one, Packers, four and a half to one, Rams, five to one. So no one else is really close. Now, next on here is the 49ers at about seven to one. 
I don't know, man. I, I do think that they are a solid team. And if you get a little bit better quarterback play, maybe I can see where they are. Maybe even with Jimmy Garoppolo, I can see where they are. But that one's a little, little tough for me. The Cowboys at 8-1. to one, I think the Cowboys have a lot of upside if everything goes right for them. The problem is they're starting to bleed talent already, whether it's Amari Cooper, whether it's uh, free agent signings that went away on the defensive side. That makes it more difficult for them to thread the needle. As we go through these other teams, yeah, I really don't see a whole lot. I mean, the Cardinals, if everything came together, are an interesting team. The Eagles, I don't know, man. I know they have A.J. Brown, but I just don't see the upside for this team. What they could do is, you know, get the division wins. So I think that could be somewhat interesting. And yeah, there really isn't another team there. So I would say that they're fairly secure, but the two teams would be the 49ers if you get some sort of Trey Lance jump there. And the Cowboys, those two next teams are, you know, in contention, but I agree that this is, it's really a wide, wide gap between those, between those teams there. And I wouldn't want to bet on anyone else, but those three teams to eventually end up winning the NFC. All right. Another question from King Cole uh, says the current over under for Browns win totals have varied, but based on their current roster construction, is this really a contending roster with how much, with how deep the AFC is? I believe they are at least fourth best roster in the AFC, but that is very much an opinion on quarterback play. Okay. I just mentioned earlier when we're talking about the Deshaun Watson uh, Super Bowl odds that no, sorry, the Sean Watson MVP odds that if he plays the entire season, I think these guys are undervalued. And it's funny because they are they have a little bit shorter odds consensus to win the AFC, but they're a little bit longer odds to win the division when it comes versus the Rams and the Bengals. Uh, I think that there should be a gap there. I think the Browns with Deshaun Watson again with Deshaun Watson, like it, Deshaun Watson. You should project him for being better than Joe Burrow if he plays the entire season based upon what we've seen. We have just way more of a sample of high-level play from Watson. Despite the fact that the team, the Texans, everything fell apart, Like I feel like he should be, well, at least equivalent, let's say, to, to Burrow and then better than Jackson. So we're talking about the best quarterback player getting there. The defense is very solid. Underrated how well they played, especially at the end of the season there. Defense is very solid. Running game has been fantastic, obviously, which is a good compliment to what they can do, what they can do passing the ball. They bring in... Uh, Amari Cooper to give him a good option there. And yeah, I think they have solid coaching. That's always going to be pressing his edges when it comes to fourth downs and things like that. So I, I don't know. I think them versus the Broncos where they have shorter odds. I mean, the longer odds than the Broncos right now, I would put them a little bit har- harder. So I think the Browns are a definite big competitor again with the caveat that I don't know how much longer I have to mention this, that I was not a fan of the Deshaun Watson Watson deal. Uh, I believe he's probably guilty of something along the way, but Hey, if he's going to play, he's going to play. And we can't just, you know, stick our head in the sand and ignore it. And we got to talk about what the ramifications are. And I think the Browns, if anything, are probably a little bit undervalued at this point in time. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, maybe I'll hit one more on here. And this is kind of a larger, this is not really the most mailbag-ish sort of question, but I think it's interesting. It says, what is a Browns fan supposed to make of Sashi going to the Ravens? The Ravens used to be my most disliked team but I'm loving almost everything they do in recent years. Well, that makes two of us. Uh, not the dislike part, but the loving part. They were number one on my front office rankings, along with also number one on Ben Baldwin's front front office rankings when we had our pod earlier this week. Go ahead and check that out. And I think it's appropriate. Um, I do think when it comes to Sashi going to the Ravens, I think one, it is a good fit for philosophy. 
and what they're doing there. Uh, he's not heavily involved in the player personnel operation side, but he aligns with what they're trying to do and Eric DaCosta is trying to do there. And I think number two is, I believe Sanchi lives in this area. You know, he was working for the Wizards in D.C. before that. I think he was living here perhaps before some of his uh, time in the NFL with the Jaguars and the uh, Browns. So I think it's local, too which probably helps a bit from, from that perspective, but who knows, maybe he would have been able to, would have been willing to go anywhere if it was a similar uh, philosophical match as it would have been with the Ravens. But I think it makes a lot of ton of sense, not only from the philosophical range, but probably just not having to move or go anywhere and be familiar with this area, kids, all that stuff. Uh, anyway, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm getting uh, some more reviews are trickling in on Apple. I appreciate those. Hopefully you can get the expand the audience a bit there. Otherwise, uh, I'll be talking to everyone next week. Don't know exactly who the guest is going to be at this point, but I'll try to find a guest for either the first or second episode, and then you'll hear me rambling on the other one. Until then, talk to everyone next week. Thanks so much. 